the Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 26th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The British Prime Minister, Theresa May, is expected to make a statement in the House of Commons today in which she will say there is a choice which MPs will have to make. We can back this deal, deliver on the vote of the referendum and move on to building a brighter future of opportunity and prosperity for all our people. or this House can choose to reject this deal and go back to square one. It would open the door to more division and more uncertainty with all the risks that will entail. This is an advance of the so-called meaningful vote when MPs will have to vote for or against the deal that was endorsed by the leaders in Brussels on Sunday. Now, joining us uh, this morning is uh, the Minister for European Affairs and Local TD, Helen McEntee. Good morning to you. Morning, Michael. Thank you for coming in to us uh, this morning. Uh, Is it possible to go back to square one, as Mrs May puts it? Well, I think what she's highlighting and what she's saying is, and and I would agree with her, if we can't agree this deal, then we have to look at the fact that it's taken two years to get to this point. Um, A lot of people are saying now, and those who maybe don't agree with what was agreed yesterday, and maybe I might Mm. headline that in a minute, that something better is there, that they're able to, to, to come up with a different deal. But what we have and what was agreed yesterday um, at a special summit where the 27 leaders plus Theresa May came together was an agreement of two separate documents, um, as I've said, both of which have taken almost two years, 18 months Mm. to agree. The first one is the withdrawal agreement, which I've spoken to on many times here, um, which focus on three key areas, the financial settlement, Mm. citizens' rights, and then, of course, the Irish backstop, which has all of our key concerns addressed, um, including avoiding a hard border, protecting the Good Friday Agreement, common travel area, transition period, all of these really significant and important issues for us. The second document then um, was a document up until last week, was about eight pages long, it's now 26 pages, and it's a joint political declaration on the kind of future relationship that we want. So this is which has yet to be agreed. This is an aspirational document, isn't it? This yes. is, I suppose, mm. what we what we know is that until the UK is a third country, until they actually leave next mm. March, you can't get into the detail in the same way that you can't get into negotiations with another country um, until they are a third party, mm. until they've left. So what we have is, in as much detail as possible, an outline as to the kind of future relationship that they want. And this document maybe is is a newer document in terms of what we've been discussing over the Mm. last few months. It's kind of set out clearly in three key areas. Um, It sets out the need or the the want for a close relationship and a partnership in Mm. terms of the economy. So getting into all the various different elements there. It talks about a close relationship in terms of security, something that the UK have been very keen to work on. And then thirdly, it talks about the various different institutions, the legal institutions, the instruments and how we would work together to apply them and how we would obviously be able to apply the two of them or whether it's the UK institutions or not. So these are very detailed, I suppose, documents in terms of the withdrawal agreement and then further detailed in terms of the political declaration. Mm. And agreed by the leaders, uh, 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 as they say, 45 years in the European Union, two years then to negotiate leaving uh, the European Union and uh, 38 minutes, I think it took uh, for the leaders to sign off on this divorce deal with the United Kingdom. Uh, But 
Theresa May is saying uh, that whilst it's been endorsed by the leaders, uh, it'll have to be ratified, obviously, by the Parliament. But if the House of Commons votes this down, she says it's back to square one. What do you think she means by that? Or is it possible, as I asked you earlier on, to go back to square one? Well, I think we're in unprecedented waters. So what it means, I don't know 100% because we don't know Mm. if they have a vote and it's rejected. But I think, again... Can they stay in the European Union? Well, that's not something that they've ever asked to do. I mean, mm. we've always said... But is it said, possible? In your view, Minister, is it possible? Well, the only way that that is possible is that if you have another vote, that's my understanding of mm. it. And obviously, there are complications and complexities with that. And the Prime Minister has always said that that's not going to be the case. But they um, triggered own. Article 50, uh, and that in itself uh, was a binding action, I would have thought. Uh, is it possible to undo that? Or, or would they be allowed to undo that? Would there be the will in Europe to allow them to stay in the European Union? I think as it currently stands... If the UK were to ask to remain, um, I would say most likely that each and every single member state that met yesterday Mm. would like them to stay. But that is not going to happen. My view um, is that is not going to happen. Um, They have never asked to change that. Yes, there are uh, requests in the UK for a people's vote, for a second vote. But again, there are complexities with that. Um, And so I don't see that happening. Um, Being very honest, I think Mm. come March next year, the UK will leave. And what we need to ensure is that when they leave, there is an agreement in place. And I think yesterday, as you said, the 27 member states plus the UK came together. The 27 Mm. member states met first in a meeting which lasted less than an hour. Theresa May joined them then. That meeting lasted less than an hour. And I think you can see from the reaction of most people, including Jean-Claude Juncker, who's the president of the commission, Michel Barnier, Tusk, everybody who was there said that this was a sad day. So while absolutely we were, I think, happy to say that we had reached an agreement that the Mm. UK government, and this is with the backing of her cabinet, I know obviously people are saying, well, she doesn't have the support to get it through. I would question that because I think throughout this whole process, people have said she doesn't have the support to get through phase one, phase two, the cabinet decision and everything else and she has so I think what we need to do now from our part is obviously allow the Prime Minister to engage in the way that she needs to engage she's going Mm. to address the House of Commons today my understanding is that she's going to travel a lot of the country as well and speak to people so far we've already seen her on radio stations answering questions people phoning up so I think she's very clear in what it is that she has tried to achieve throughout this whole process and she was very clear yesterday in saying a vote took place, the British people voted to leave. I have fulfilled that wish that they have asked for um, and I've done it in a way that I think is best for the UK. Mm. Um, And obviously from our point of view, we have fulfilled a deal and and commitments that we made to Irish people in terms of ensuring that our economy is impacted as little as possible and I think as well taking away the fact that we still have to negotiate a future relationship what we have now with the Irish backstop and the protocol is something that would ensure that our peace process is protected that we never return to a hard border but also that our economy is somewhat protected because when we talk about now a shared customs territory that is something that is important and significant for a lot of business who do a lot of work with the UK. So I think there's there's a lot of areas here that we are um, happy that we have fulfilled our commitments to our own Irish people. But obviously it's now up to the Prime Minister to explain as to why this deal is good for the UK um, and what it means well, for people. She really has her work cut out for her, doesn't she? In that there's 90 Tories uh, who've spoken publicly against this deal. Uh, the DUP are saying bin Brexit. 
Well, you have, I suppose, unlike ours, where we have uh, 158 TDs, there's 650 MPs in the UK. So mm. there's a, a very large number. So while 90 is obviously a significant but number. She, she's five short of winning a, a vote uh, if she was relying on the Conservative Party alone. So that's why she's in this deal with the 10 DUP MPs. Uh, they've said no. 90 Tories have said no. Uh, and that's uh, looking for a majority of 320, isn't it? It is, and, and I think she has a, a tough job in her hands. I'm not saying mm. she doesn't. Um, as I've said, it's up to her now, and I think we, we have to give her the time and, and the ability to do what she needs to do and to engage with them. Um, it's less than or maybe just over two weeks mm. to a vote. I think um, the 10th of December that week, whatever day it is, is most likely when the vote will take place. But, you know, she has managed to, to get through, as I've said, the various different stages, and I think this is the only deal that is going to work, that is actually going to achieve everything that she as Prime Minister set out to achieve, that we set out to achieve and that the European Union set out to achieve. There are compromises on both sides as there is, I think, with any negotiation or any agreement and I think... But the compromise is too great in the view of the DUP. They say that this is dividing the United Kingdom. There are a lot of people with different views on this, absolutely, Mm. and I mean, there are some who have said that this is... um, Taking the United or taking Northern Ireland further away from the United Kingdom, um, I would disagree with that. Um, I think there are already differences in Northern Ireland in terms of social differences, legal differences with respect to the rest of the UK. What we're talking about here now is in the absence of a future relationship and a free trading relationship, there being full alignment in areas only necessary to avoid a hard border but we're talking about now a shared customs territory there would be no additional customs checks between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK and they would continue to have unfettered Mm. access to the UK market plus access to the European single market in the area of goods so I think this is something that is um, fulfilling all of the commitments that the Prime Minister made last December in terms of avoiding a border but also ensuring that there is no changes or diminution of rights for people living in Northern Ireland. In fact, they will continue to have a lot of the same rights. And for me, I think that's really important. And that's why we've seen so many of Northern Ireland mm. business, to the farming unions, manufacturing, food and drink, retail, all come out and say that this is a good deal for Northern Ireland. This ensures that our businesses will be protected. But it, it does not interrupt in any it way. It separates Northern Ireland from the rest of the United Kingdom. Uh, that's the argument that DUP is making. Nigel Dodds explains this by writing in the Irish Independent today saying the backstop puts Northern Ireland under swathes of EU laws with no say for anyone in Belfast or London. It creates a trade border down the Irish Sea. Again, I, I look at it and I see this as being something that actually doesn't do that. Um, I see the fact that in the very first paragraph of the Irish Protocol, it says there will be no diminution of rights for people living in Northern Ireland. That's whether you um, are Irish, British or whether you say that you're European. Um, it also says that the territorial integrity of the United Kingdom, which includes Northern Ireland, will not be in any way changed. It also says the principle of consent, which is very much connected with the Good Friday Agreement, which says that if Northern Ireland was ever to leave the United Kingdom, there would have to be a vote. That still stands. Mm. So, I mean, all of this is very clear. All of this is very much outlined in the withdrawal agreement. But also, um, I think the future political declaration outlines that that relationship that Northern Ireland has with the UK as part of the United Kingdom will continue on any future relationships, any trade deals that take place it would be part of that. So 
you know, from our point of view, the commitments that the Prime Minister made last year to protect the Good Friday Agreement and ensure no border, that has been upheld, but also ensuring that the territorial integrity of the United Kingdom remains as is, that is also being held as well. So I think... Mm. But that's um, not... That argument is not accepted. And and I understand that there are concerns, mm. absolutely. Um, from my point of view, I well, believe that well, the more, commitments have been yeah, made. More, more the kept. concerns. The DUP would argue that it's been betrayed and uh, it will pull its support for the Conservative government. Again, I you know... I think there are a lot of different views and I, I understand that there are still concerns, that there are concerns mm. on all sides of the, the negotiations here. But what we need to look at is that we have an agreement here. Um, there are suggestions and there are people saying that a better deal can be done. Mm. Um, and I think we have to remember as well, going back to last December, the commitment that was made to ensure no border ever returns on this island was not just a commitment by Ireland. It was not just a commitment by the EU. It was a commitment by Theresa May and every single political party, including the DUP, Sinn Féin, the Mm. Conservatives, Labour, the entire way throughout this process, they have all given that commitment. And so what we have said and what I would say now is what other solutions are there? We have spent two years trying to figure out how we can address all of these concerns. But you haven't solved it. You know, at the beginning of the process, the DUP would have been arguing we don't want to be treated in any way differently than the rest of the United Kingdom. They say that that is exactly what's happened. Again, I would go back to the fact that there are very clear differences in Northern Ireland that already exist today, whether it's socially, we only have to look at the most recent referendums in terms Mm. of abortion um, and marriage rights. That's very different in Northern Ireland as opposed to the rest of the UK. And there are other areas that are different as well. But they would say that that's their business as a, a sovereign state and they are perhaps different than the rest of the United Kingdom, but they're a part of the United Kingdom. And they will remain and continue to be a part of the United Kingdom. But they would the be Prime Minister has been very, very clear Treated differently under this deal and that is their problem. So under this deal, and and again, maybe just to go back Mm. to the fact that the withdrawal agreement and particularly the Irish protocol is a last case scenario. Mm. It is an insurance policy and it's there in the absence of a future relationship. And we have yet to actually start really properly getting into the detail Mm. of the future relationship. What we have is a political declaration and an outline. But if we can agree this, if the House of Commons can in two weeks time agree this deal, we move on to then March the 29th next year, come the 30th of March, you then start getting into the detail of what a future relationship will look like and what we hope and what the Prime Minister hopes and the EU Mm. hopes is that this relationship will essentially deem this backstop no longer necessary, no longer required. It is the last resort and it is there to ensure that we have no hard border. Again, a commitment that the DUP Mm. gave, every party in the North, that the UK, the EU and ourselves gave. And this is the way that we feel best addresses all of these concerns. And I understand you're saying that the DUP don't agree with that fully, but there will be, minimal, there will be minimal change. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, yeah, and we'll hear from the DUP later. Uh, but uh, just uh, let's talk about the worst case scenario, which is that this is defeated in the House of Commons. That would be the next step and that would be the worst possible outcome of that vote from our perspective, at least. Uh, and that will happen, as you say, the week beginning the 10th of December. I think the 12th may be the date for the vote. Uh, but uh, at that stage, you're into days away from the political system closing down for Christmas and not starting back up again until the middle of January as such. And we're talking about a very short time frame then before the end of March to find a solution. What do you envisage happening? 
Well, I'm, I'll be honest, I, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it would be appropriate for me to speculate about having a no deal at the moment, particularly when less than 24 hours ago, the UK with the 27 other mm. countries have actually agreed a deal and we have a deal on the table. Yes, I take into account that there are a lot of, uh, you know, there, there is time left and there are over two weeks now before the Prime Minister has to actually get an agreement in the House of Commons. I will say that we have, throughout this entire process, um, been planning and there has been contingency planning within every department. Every minister has been doing their own piece of work. All of our industries, our sectors, we have been travelling the country for the past month and a half. We have another event taking place in Letterkenny this week where we're inviting business to come to engage with government agencies to help them be as prepared as possible because we have always said that even in the best case scenario there will be some changes, particularly in terms of east-west trade um, so we are planning and continuing to plan for all of these possible um, outcomes. But what we're not planning for, and I've, I've said this many times, we're not planning for the reintroduction of any kind of a border. So when we said in September at this year's budget mm. that the funding was made available for people to be on ports and airports, that work has started. Is it possible to push out the deadline so that uh, the UK is given more time to find a solution uh, along with uh, the rest of Europe so that they don't leave at the end of March? Uh, because uh, you may be looking for, or they may be looking for time to hold uh, a general election. So if the UK were to ask for an extension of Article mm-hmm. 50, then that's something that I think would be looked upon favourably. But obviously the Prime Minister has never asked for that, um, has never indicated that that would even be a possibility because the focus up until now and the focus continues to be on this deal that we now have so right up until last week when the political declaration was signed off on on Wednesday the week before that when the joint uh, the, the withdrawal agreement was agreed the focus has been on this agreement mm. not on what if we don't okay. actually agree to this agreement so I think for me now the focus needs to continue to be on what we've actually agreed mm. and as I've said have only agreed less than 24 hours ago she has two weeks now to make sure that she is clear as to why this is the best deal for the UK, but also I think for Ireland and for the rest of the EU, there have been compromises on both sides. But at the end of the day, there's nothing else on the table. We are not in a different scenario. We have yet to see any vote cast in the House of Commons. And I think our focus needs to be now on making sure that this deal is agreed um, and that coming into March next year that we have an agreement and that people know exactly what is happening. And for me and for my colleagues, that is what the priority is right now. Okay. Minister, thank you for coming thank in you. to us this morning. Uh, this morning. I beg your pardon. Uh, Fine Gael TD for me, the East. Helen McEntee is uh, the Minister for European Affairs. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Airgrid is planning a new electricity infrastructure project. It'll be under the banner of Airgrid Capital Project 966, which today seems like a bit of a mouthful. But uh, I was uh, just saying to our next guest that, like a lot of these Airgrid projects, uh, you end up saying it so often over a period of time that they end up rolling off uh, the tongue. David Martin, spokesperson with Airgrid, is with us here this morning. Uh, Do you expect that to be the case with this project? Well, I expect it will become quite familiar to your listeners over the coming years. Uh, Capital Project 966 is a, is a major investment in the electricity infrastructure in the east of the country. Uh, demand for electricity is growing rapidly, uh, particularly in Mead, Kildare and, and Dublin. And we have to make sure that we have uh, the electricity there to meet that demand. Demand is being, is, is, is being driven by economic growth and also um, 
lot of high-tech investments as well, mm. particularly in the east coast of the country that require a lot of power. So we, we've done our analysis. We project that this demand is going to keep on growing over the next 10 years. So we need to make sure that the electricity system is fit for purpose and that it's, it can support that economic growth. So it's the likes of Facebook and these other big multinational corporations that are, they, are setting up in this part of the country. People like these companies. They like the jobs that come with them, but they need to be serviced with electricity. Very much so. And, and I will point out some of it is organic growth. You know, the economy is doing well. So we're, we're seeing that we're seeing a lot of demand for electricity from traditional industry and, and consumers. People, you're using a lot more electricity in your home now than perhaps in years ago where you've got more devices or whatever. However, a, a, lot, a big driver, as you say, for this uh, growth is a lot of high tech investors in the in the east of the in the east of the country. And they demand a lot of electricity. So we need to make sure that we can secure those jobs, secure those industries, but make sure that the electricity is there for them. But. This project will deal with the lines that are coming from the west of the country that service the east of the country and are not up uh, to spec in order to do what's required now. Well, well, the the lines themselves are actually they've done a great job. They've been there for thirty years. They they link. Uh, uh, Money Point, which is over in the west of the country in Clare, to two very strong nodes on the electricity system. One is in Dunstown in Kildare, and and the other is Woodland in Meath. Here in in, in Meath, that's very close to Batterstown. Mm. Um, so what we've got there's a lot more renewable energy coming down uh, those lines now. So up to thirty percent of our electricity is now coming from renewable sources. And as we all know, there's a hell of a lot of wind over in the west coast of the country. So we're now using those lines to get that wind to feed the demand over in the east. So what we're seeing is that there's a heck of a lot more wind on that system. We have to make sure that once it gets to the east of the country, that we can then distribute it properly and effectively throughout the east coast. So mm. that's me. There there, there's two strands to this, though, is there, uh, in that you're going to upgrade the existing lines coming west to east, uh, and you're also going to connect those two power stations. They're not connected at the moment, are they not? Well, I just, uh, it, it, we're going to leave, the, we're not upgrading the two lines, so that we have those, what we call 400 kV lines. Those mm. 204 kV lines are, will, will stay as they are. What we're going to do, we're going to reinforce the connection between the two strong points, between Dunstown and Kildare and uh, Woodland and Meath. So what we're, what we're concerned about is there's so much power coming from the west. If one of those two lines was to go down, what happens then automatically, the power just goes through that one line. And then when it reaches the east coast, there's no effort to go. It's a bottleneck. So what we need to do is make sure that we can transfer power between those two strong points in Meath and Kildare so that the power will then move on effectively. So mm. that's, that's the key driver for this project, to make sure that there's a very strong link between those two nodes. So on the network at okay. least. And one of the projects that rolls off the tongue without much thought is the North-South Interconnector and people will be familiar with the idea of uh, the very powerful overhead lines, the 400 kilovolt lines uh, that uh, are the controversial part of that proposal uh, and as to whether they go overground or underground. Uh, and th- at this stage, uh, you're looking at something relatively similar, but you're looking at all options. We are very much looking at all options. This is a very early stage in the process. We launched the project just on Friday and we have now adopted a very um, systematic approach to how we develop these projects. And what we want to do is to make people aware of them at the earliest possible stage and to seek feedback from them. So what we have at the moment, our technicians have been doing a lot of analysis and they've come up with their proposal, the shortlist of five possible technology solutions for this project. Uh, two of them are underground. 
Two of them are uh, traditional overhead lines. And then there's a possibility of reinforcing some of the existing infrastructure in Crossmeath and Kildare to upgrade it to the power level that we require. So what we're doing now is this is the first step of the consultation. We're asking people to get in touch. The information is available on our website, which is at www.ergrid.com. You'll see it there. Capital Project 966 is on our homepage there. So click on that. There's a heck of a lot of information mm-hmm. there for you. Some, some of it quite technical, mm-hmm. um, but I think there's a good, it'll give you a good overview of what the project entails and why it's needed, and also explaining how we will be consulting over the coming years. Yeah, and we know uh, from previous experience that some of uh, our listeners have great technical expertise, uh, indeed, uh, the campaign groups and so on. Uh, but uh, people listening to us uh, this morning might be interested to hear that you're considering underground options. Why is that an option for this project when it wasn't? A an option or continues not to be an option for the North-South Interconnector? Well, for the North-South Interconnector, we did a lot of technical analysis and we came up with a, with a we, just, we concluded that the best solution was an overhead 400 kV line. That analysis was done uh, in our office in Dublin with some very, very smart people doing that and then we came out and presented that, that solution to the people in, in, in Meath, Cavan and Monaghan. Um, we have not done, we're not, we're taking it at a much earlier stage now. We're probably two years before that we've come up to, we will come to a, a, a final option on this. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of technologies on, on the page at the moment. We're, we're analysing each one of them. Some of them will fall off. Some of them won't make it. And mm-hmm. ultimately, we will get the best option. What that will be at this stage, we don't know. It may well mm-hmm. be an overhead line. It could possibly be an underground, but there are still a lot of analysis to do, and we want to bring people with us on that journey. That's that's the key thing it, for us. It, it seems a, a surprising position, uh, for want of a better way of putting it, for Airgrid to look at this as an option, because I think one of the options you're talking about is one of the largest underground projects, if it was to go ahead, in the world. Well, what, what we have, um, without getting into too de- mm. deep technical matters here, we are looking at a, an underground 400 kV um, line. It's about 55 to 60 kilometres, the distance between these stations. So the north-south is significantly longer. It's about 140 kilometres. So in terms of, because of the distance is a bit shorter, it's something that we can look at. It would still be a, a, a big project and very a big technical challenge. Uh, but our analysis will be ca- conducted on that over the coming months. And we'll be coming back and I'll probably be here talking mm. to you next year, yes. Michael, mm. with the refined shortlist. And whether it's on it or not, we'll be able to talk about that then. Okay. But for the, for the mm. moment, there are two underground options on the table. Uh, and uh, the cost of this between 110 and 190 million. Yeah, is it's it? a major project. Mm. It's, a, it's a huge investment in the electricity infrastructure. And does that take into account uh, the legal costs and the delays because of legal proceedings? Because that's something you've been criticised for it, in it terms of not, money no, this, being this spent. Is, this would be the cost of developing it and mm. building it out the, whichever option it is you know it, from whether it's the cheapest 110 million option up to the more expensive one so that's um at 190 million so mm-hmm. no, it wouldn't cost it, it, we're not bringing in other hypothetical mm-hmm. costs that may may accrue and hopefully perhaps will or, not accrue or, or in inevitable situation. some would have said about the other project uh, that we're all so familiar with well i'm, I'm it's it, I, I, I'm, I think i'm hoping for a bit of a honeymoon period in this michael <laughs> we just announced it on friday yes, we mm, don't expect mm. any planning application to go in probably for two to three years sure with mm. energization probably in about five years time mm. 
But we really do want to hear from people on this. Yeah. It's very, very early stage of the process. And as you say, Capital Project 966, people can see more details on the AirGrid website. Very much so, Michael. David, thank you indeed for coming thank in to us uh, this morning. David Martin, spokesperson for AirGrid. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Jim Wells is an MLA for the DUP in South Down and joins us once again this morning. Jim Wells, we heard from the Irish Minister for European Affairs a few minutes ago telling us that she doesn't believe that the deal as endorsed by the leaders over the weekend does anything to break up the United Kingdom. Helen McEntee was saying that the agreement ensures territorial rights and protects people regardless of whether it's protecting Irish citizens or British citizens, as the case may be. Uh, but you believe otherwise. No, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? The reality is that this deal, if it goes ahead, and of course it won't because it's going to lose at Westminster, would draw a regularly border down the middle of the Irish Sea and Northern Ireland would then start to diverge from the rest of the United Kingdom to a point where, frankly, that we're effectively will be out of the UK. And then, of course, the argument will be, well, the way to regularise that is to bring us into United Ireland. Now, we're not, we're not going to play that little game. And it's quite clear that this deal, when it does go before the Westminster in the form of a mean, meaningful vote, will lose and lose heavily. So, therefore, um, the, the Irish government can say all they like, but this deal is dead in the water. OK. Um, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, we were talking earlier on uh, about the time frame involved in all of this uh, and uh, how little time there is in reality before the end of March because of uh, the Christmas break and this vote uh, won't happen until maybe the 12th of December. At that stage, you're almost into the holidays. Uh, it's the middle of January before uh, the uh, political uh, institutions uh, start working a- again. So there's a really only a matter of a few weeks to sa- solve this, if it's possible at all. I agree with you on that one, um, but of course the Article 50 period can be extended, and this is a political will, I'm sure that can happen. The, the, the reality is that you know there has to be a better deal, because at the minute we're faced with a very stark contrast. We're faced with either the choice of this agreement or no agreement and, mm. and a hard Brexit, and of course no one wants that. So therefore, what's absolutely essential is that time is given for further negotiations. There is a third way. There's a third option that's very simple. That option is that the United Kingdom as a whole leaves uh, the European Union and has a Canada Plus type trading agreement. That's the deal. That's a simple deal that at least we can get the heads of agreement worked out before the end of March on this. And and that's where we have to go because uh, I need to tell your listeners, your your, your hundreds of thousands of listeners uh, now that FM that this deal is not going to happen. And I think the Irish Mm. government need to realise this. This deal will not get through Westminster. Uh, Do you believe there will be an extension of Article 50? That Brexit will be pushed out uh, and uh, that uh, the uh, 1st of April uh, will be business as usual, in other words? Well, it's a decision that the 27 members are going to have to make and they're going to have to decide themselves do they want to reach a sensible compromise or do they want to crash out where there's a 90 billion euro deficit in trade between the United Kingdom and the EU? In other words, the EU sells 90 billion uh, more to the United Kingdom than we buy from them. One in every seven German cars that are manufactured are sold in the UK. Do they want that or do they want to sit down and have a sensible agreement? Now, can I tell you, Michael, I know why they're reluctant to do that because they have to, to send... The United Kingdom out of the European Union with bloodstains on their back. 
because if they didn't make it difficult for the United Kingdom, then other countries like Hungary and the Czech Republic would say, well, hold on here. Mm. If we can get out on a good deal with a Canada Plus, then why shouldn't we go down the same route as well? And that's the difficulty. They have to make an example of the UK, and we're not prepared to play their game. Okay, uh, but what reason would there be for them extending Article 50? Uh, there would have to be a significant change, whether either people would change their minds, uh, vote in favour of this deal, or something like that, which you say is not going to happen, or uh, the prospect of a general election. Well, I don't think there's going to be any general election in the United Kingdom. I, I think that we've got something called the Fixed Term Parliament Act, which means that there can't really be an election before 2022. I think what the realisation will be that when Spanish food growers or German car manufacturers or Finnish mobile phone makers say to the, the EU, look, hold on here, we can't afford a hard Brexit. We have to do a deal. So and there's mean, nothing intrinsically wrong with Canada Plus, nothing whatsoever, apart from it's a good deal for the UK. Okay, well, what would happen if the DUP uh, stopped supporting, uh, stopped, pulled out of the confidence and supply agreement that you have with the Conservative Party? Well, first of all, make it very clear, the DUP MPs will be voting against this deal when the meaningful votes held in two weeks. We still will then be in the the confidence and supply arrangement with the Conservatives, and we'll watch that situation very carefully. If the Conservatives then turn around and say, right, well, we'll go back with a better deal, which takes Northern Ireland out of the European Union on exactly the same basis as the rest of the UK, well, then the confidence supply arrangement will continue. But we're watching the situation carefully. We're not going to be hoisted in old platade by saying uh, exactly what we would do in that situation because, as you know, Michael, this situation is changing by the hour rather than the day. But what happens if the DUP pulls out of the confidence and supply agreement? Well, then you'd have a minority government. You'd have a what's called a vote of no confidence in the prime minister, mm. and uh, anything could happen in that situation. We we could have a, a, a change of premier, premier, which is probably the most likely outcome. Because for there to be an election, then the Conservative Party would need to support that, and of course that can't ha- that won't happen. So there's, there's all sorts of scenarios between now and March of 2019. There's no question about it. And you and I will be debating this for many, many months to come. That's the one thing that's absolutely certain. And yeah. I still won't get paid for any of it. <laughs> that's true. Uh, <laughs> do you'll you... be one of the top paid duty uh, presenters in the Irish Republic and I still won't get a penny for all my submissions to you. Uh, I'll take a recording to my boss uh, on both points and ask him <laughs> to address them. Uh, but uh, in terms of what happened over the weekend, uh, do you feel you were betrayed by the Prime Minister? Desperately let down. Um, we just simply don't know what she's playing at. Uh, this time last year we were given a commitment that there would be no border down the Irish Sea, that the backstop would not allow to be used as a, a ransom note uh, for the future of, of Northern Ireland. We, we, we would like to know what Theresa May is playing at, to be honest, because she is taking her cavalry into the Valley of the Shadow of Death. She's she's going into the, the like the Crimean uh, War. She's taking her, her party into a battle that she will lose. And nobody can work out what the rationale behind that is. I think uh, we're going to have to start making preparations now for a deal that will not get through. And we need to be making preparations now for a better deal. Um, There's been so many twists and turns in this, Michael. I find it very difficult to keep up with it, to be honest with you. And I'm following it day and daily. And so must be you and your team of researchers, because it is a very fluid situation. Yeah, but you don't, you wouldn't go as far as to say that you were betrayed by the Prime Minister. Um, there are some in the party have said that others have said that she's been naive and mis- 
misguided. Um, I don't want to inflame the situation any further. All I can say to you is that a lot of people have felt desperately let down with what's happened. And we, we someday, maybe when you write your memoirs, we'll find out what on earth is Theresa playing at because this has the worst of all these. I mean, you know, th- th- this is worse than a hard Brexit. I mean, that's reality. Both are terrible options, mm. but this is worse than a hard Brexit. And there's not a slither of support from the DUP for, for, for this deal. None whatsoever. Take it from me, Mike. We will be voting against it. Right. Why is it worse than a hard Brexit? It's worse than a hard Brexit because it, it totally undermines the constitutional position of Northern Ireland within the United Kingdom. And secondly, it also cuts us off from 72% of our market. The single market that really counts for Northern Ireland is not the European single market, but the United Kingdom single market. We export the vast bulk of our goods to and from England, Scotland and Wales. So not only constitutionally it is extremely dangerous, mm. but also will totally undermine our trading status. And there are 130 regulations waiting on the stops to come in. Uh, those will be brought in after March the 29th. If this deal went ahead, those will be implemented in Northern Ireland, but not in the rest of the UK. And I've asked you the question many times, mm. would County Clare and Mayo tolerate this? Absolutely not. They wouldn't tolerate a, a customs union barrier put down the Shannon, for instance. Mm, because that, that would be dividing the country, and that is your point. It's dividing. That is the, right. That's dividing the union, and if it is dividing the union, do you believe it brings a border pole somewhat closer? Well, first of all, well done, Michael. You're the first journalist to have actually summed it up so well. The people in Connacht would not tolerate this type of treatment. They'd be upper one Ballina and Galway if this isn't happened. This happened. Secondly, if the uh, deal went ahead, yes, it would, in my opinion, put enormous pressure on the United Kingdom government to have a border pull because the obvious argument would be made. The only way to solve the problem of the border down the Irish Sea is not to have Northern Ireland as part of the United Kingdom, but to assimilate within the Republic of Ireland. And we're not going to do anything to assist that process. Thank you very much. We're a British, we're an integral part of the United Kingdom, and we're determined to ensure that continues. Okay, well, look, thank you indeed uh, for speaking to us uh, this morning. Much appreciated. As always, uh, Jim Wells, DUP MLA for Southdown. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Maggie McGuire joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Maggie. Morning, Michael. How are you doing? I'm not too bad for uh, Monday, but uh, I have to say I'm a little bit confused, to be honest with you. Okay, why so? Uh, Well, you know, I don't write the news, I read it, uh, or the headlines uh, when they're handed in to me, and uh, I'm seeing that the recent cold and sunny spell is uh, to be replaced with heavy rain. <laughs> We've had a lot of rain. <laughs> Notice the sunny spell at any no, point. No, uh, I don't know if there was ever as much rain as there was yesterday. My God, there was flooding and oh, a lot unbelievable. of unbelievable. Yeah, 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 it was ridiculous altogether. A, a, a lot of serious flooding about the place, uh, for that matter. And, and uh, hailstones yeah, actually at one point. Uh, absolutely, yes, and a lot of heavy rain this morning as well. So yeah. I'm not sure if we're replacing the heavy rain with heavy rain, but I, I gather from the headline that other parts of the country had uh, slightly drier weather than we've been having lately. Yeah. We need to move 
I think we need to move. That's what has to happen. <laughs> okay. How have the phones been today, Maggie? Yeah, busy this morning, I have to say, and I kind of feel like we're operating a, a Brexit helpline or a comment line at the moment mm. because that seems to be what the majority of people are calling in about this morning. And uh, if I'm honest, it seems like people are entering a period of uh, Brexit fatigue, yeah. possibly. Um, we oh, had, and if, if you love I'm Brexit like group. I love Brexit. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know it's one of your favourite things, Michael. Oh, yeah, I know that. Yeah. Mm. Um, well, I, I had Anne on the line to me earlier and um, she called in, obviously, about Brexit and our opening interview with uh, Helen McEntee. And she was just saying that she thought when this draft deal was put together that we were beginning to see the end the beginning of the mm-hmm. end basically of uh, with Brexit and all the discussions that have been happening for the last couple of years but she feels that listening to the interview with the Minister this morning mm-hmm. makes her think that we've effectively only taken one step forward and that we're nowhere nearer the finishing line on this so she wants to know when is this all going to end she asked and I wish I had an answer for her yeah. but I don't mm-hmm. she just said she feels like we've been talking about this forever yeah and yeah, that's she, what happens when you talk about the same thing for two years. Yeah, this mm. is it, and um, it feels like we're going to be talking about it forever as well. Well, it seems like we might be. Yeah, we're hearing a, a lot of talk now about extending Article Fifty, which is the article which started the Brexit process, mm. uh, which means that they're meant to crash out of or leave Europe uh, at the end of March, uh, and uh, that might be pushed out. Um, Martin was in touch as well on the same subject um, he f- feels that uh, Theresa May has an impossible task ahead of her that if the DUP um, insists that they're not going to accept the deal which we just heard Jim Wells say that they're yeah. not and you know they're saying that they're going to pull their support for the government well then there's no way that Theresa May is going to try and call their bluff as Martin um, puts it and try and push the deal through he believes we're going to see a back to square one scenario in the next couple of weeks and we're going to be facing into years more of these um, these discussions so okay. happy days and that <laughs> just yeah, well, I, I think he might be right unfortunately yeah, yeah. and again on Brexit again um, Tommy was in touch um, following on from our interview with Minister McEntee um, he wants to know why she kind of seems a little bit reluctant at times to answer a direct question when she's on. She always kind of prefaces her responses with saying, in my opinion. Um, he also wants to know why we're talking about the possibility of a people's vote on Brexit in the UK again. He says, who do we think voted on the issue the last time? It wasn't the livestock of the country, it was the people. And they voted to leave, so why are they being forced to vote again? Yeah, because I think a lot of uh, the people that he's talking about are saying they didn't know, they didn't understand the consequence of their vote uh, when they cast it in June 16. Uh, but let's talk uh, about uh, another historical issue and that of uh, the Navan rail line. Uh, Fianna Fáil councillor Tommy Riley is on the line. We've been hearing you complain uh, that this has hit a, a standstill and uh, there, there's been no sign of progress. Uh, you want uh, some action taken at this stage, I understand. Good morning, Michael. Yes, um it seems to have hit a standstill. I have been happy on this, like many others has over the last number of years. But uh, I'm on. I'm on the. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. 
Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. EMRA, which is the Eastern Midlands Re- Region Authority, and we have been discussing the 2040 plan for the last nearly two years now probably and I've had discussions with Minister Coveney when he was in environment at the time I haven't got to meet this other man yet but uh, the Navan rail line was nearly uh, extinct in the 2040 plan so it is back up maybe to 2021 but I'm not at all happy about what's happening um, I've sought a meeting with, with uh, Minister Ross and the seven Oireachtas members from County Mead and our Chief Executive who has been doing our best to try and get uh, mm. movement on it. But, uh, uh, Minister Ross, uh, the Minister for Transport, uh, but yeah. uh, there's probably a, a lot of people scratching their heads saying, what's the Navin rail line? There's no train I- I- in Navin uh, and never was or was there or when was there last oh, train? Oh, there was. The yeah. was trains in Navin, all right. Were you ever on one? Only there was. They used to no. go to Lake Town, they used to go to the footballs in Crow Park. How long ago was that? In the 60s. Yeah. Yes, in the 60s. Okay. But, um, you know, what's, what's calling me, Michael, is that um, when I see I had the occasion to be going to a hospital appointment in Dublin there at 6.30 there, 7 o'clock, mm. uh, maybe a month ago there on the bus, and uh, I went on the bus and to see the unfortunate people that's queued on that road, three deep, all roads, crossed down to the end two, the same. Last year I was going down to Funeral and Antler. We had to go across to Maynooth. Mm. There was from the toll bridge in and the M4, the whole lot. I don't think that the people in Dublin realise the stress that's been put on young families, young parents who drop their kids in at 6.37 in the morning, crashes, mm. and don't pick them up until 7 o'clock or half 7 and even. Yeah. No time to get involved in any sports organisations any community they're stressed out it's causing mayhem in families family but, life is desecrated because of this but well people have uh, managed somehow uh, despite how you put it uh, over all of these years uh, I, I'm not sure if you went as far as Laytown in the 60s probably Drogheda because I think it was 1958 when uh, they stopped all passenger service beyond Drogheda Oh, well, we went, we went on one there to a football match not that many years ago at all in the 80s, actually. Okay, uh, yeah. <laughs> we, we went to Drogheda, so we did. I'm sure you did, but not on a scheduled train service. No, 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 no. It was a special, yeah, it was a yeah, special yeah, service. Yeah. But, uh, no, Michael, I, I, I just, I, I'm really annoyed that it has not been put to the top of the agenda. But as you could read in the papers over the weekend there, that everything seems to be going into Dublin, the jobs are going into Dublin mm. and naturally people want to go in and work in Dublin and want to live as close to Dublin as possible but the amount of time that's been spent and we're talking about climate change I, I happen to be chairman of the Environment SPC in Mead County Council and we had a meeting on climate change there on Friday which the biggest problem of climate change is the traffic and the fumes that it's causing mm. and they're on the road for hours every day that there's no need to be But you're looking for a service to Dublin now? 
I am indeed. Right. I'm looking for the, uh, the, the extension of the rail line from Dunboyne down to Navan. I mean, it's not just for Which Navin. was planned, uh, and I think the plan yeah. was that that would have happened by 2030, but uh, you're talking about people coming together, including Mead County Council and the officials uh, trying to make this happen, but isn't yeah. part of the problem a sewage pipe that the council put uh, on the route of uh, the proposed uh, line? <laughs> Well, look, there's no, there's none of those things that can't be, can't be uh, rectified. No matter what it is, they can move rivers if they want to, or bridges if they want to. If the effort was there, if the will was there to do it, I mean. But has that? Well, okay. Has Mead County Council got the will if they put a sewage pipe there? If, 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 well, Mead County Council will try their best to get it moving. It's all a government decision. If the government says the money is there, we'll go or we're PPP, hmm. you know, probably private partnership. I don't mind who builds the rail line as long as we can get it. But was it Fianna Fáil who closed it? It was. It was. No question. They're, they're, not, they're, not, they're not away from blame either. Uh, past Fianna Fáil governments, even in the, la- in the last 10, 15 years, they should have been working on this as well. Hmm. When do you think it'll happen, if it ever happens? Well, they're saying they're saying now they've moved it up to 2021. That's what that's what's given me the power up on the on the 2040 plan up to 2021. It was 20. It wasn't mentioned in the first draft, and then it was 2030. And now they have it at 2021. I sincerely hope for the for for the for family life. It's not it's not for Tommy Riley or Michael Reid or anything. It's for people that can have time with their families, rear their families properly, have a, have a a bit of happiness in life because they haven't got it. They're stressed out travelling. Travelling, mm. travelling. I'm very disappointed if they won't let me on the train. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you'll be there to see you, Eddie, Michael. You'll I be hope the first so. Yeah. All right, Tommy. Thanks uh, for Hi, joining Michael. us as always. Uh, that's uh, Fianna Fall Councillor Tommy Riley. Now let's go back uh, to some more of your thoughts, more of your comments, Maggie. What else have you got for us there? Staying with Brexit, we're back to Brexit again. Um, Tracy was in contact with us, um, and she wants to know why government, the Irish governments and the UK governments, are wasting their time pushing forward with the current deal. If it really is dead in the water, as Jim Miles put it in, your, in the interview with you, um, surely it's just a monumental waste of time and money. Why not give it up as a bad job and go back to the people? Okay, okay. Have a, have a referendum. Have a referendum, yeah. yeah. Well, I suppose you have to go through the procedure and, uh, you know, uh, a referendum was held. Mm-hmm. People said what they wanted uh, and Theresa May has gone out and negotiated that to the best of her ability, no doubt. So now it has to be voted on and if it's accepted... Uh, I think a lot of people will be surprised, but if it's rejected, well, then maybe it will be another referendum. This is it. And Margaret, mm. um, echoing the sentiments of quite a few people on the phones this morning, is saying she's sick sore and tired of hearing about Brexit. Mm. Feels like we've been talking about it forever and we're no closer to seeing an end. It's impossible to keep up with everything that's happening and changing on a daily basis. And she feels that, like her, the majority of people are tired of hearing about it. Mm. Well, I, I think so. But at the same time, I think people would be giving out to us if uh, they we went up... talking about Well, if, we, if they went up to... Like, let's say, fill up the car with fuel in the morning and mm. uh, there was no petrol in the petrol station or something like that, uh, you know, I, I think people will say, well, why didn't you warn us? This is it. Mm. And, and, and to finish up yeah. on, on a non-Brexit related mm. comment, oh, actually, Rogan, which made me very happy because there's been quite a few Brexit <laughs> yeah. ones. Mm. Um, Mary was in contact with us on um, your favourite subject, yeah. Christmas. Mm. Uh, she says she knows she's going to be shot down for this making this comment, but she just has to get it off her chest. And um, She thinks it's absolutely ludicrous how many people already have their houses done up for Christmas. Nearly every second house she has seen has their tree up or their lights up and it's not even the end of November. She said she's all for getting into the Christmas spirit, etc., etc. Mm. But feels that if you start the build up too early, then you're sick to the back teeth of Christmas by the time it actually comes around. She, she's not trying to be a Grinch, but she thinks people could at least wait until December before decking the halls, yeah. as she puts mm. it. Yeah, well, some of these uh, shops uh, start selling Christmas goods in October. September? 
Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. there was actually a I shop so, up at yeah. home, I think, in the first week of October, I had selection right. boxes and everything out, okay, so I can't yeah, really... Yeah. Uh, she has a point, but the, uh, it used to be the 8th of December, was it? Or Yeah, yeah. whatever, mm-hmm. yeah, the, mm. the holy day on the way, I can't think of yeah. it, that's terrible, my mother's going to kill me, but um, yeah, uh, mm. the 8th of December after yeah. it, everyone sure. went to Dublin. But Maybe somebody will uh, remind you on the phones yeah. or, or, or give you a call, but please give Maggie a call and talk to her about anything but Brexit, please. <laughs> That'd be nice. Yeah, you'd like that. All right, well, Maggie's waiting on your call if you have something to say. Our telephone number is 1850-715958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to the ongoing criminal feud in uh, Drogheda. As you know, uh, there's uh, two gangs at uh, the centre of uh, this story. At the heart of this story, though, is drugs and uh, the turf war that is uh, taking place between uh, the two gangs. And we know that there's very violent, serious individuals involved in all of this. What's happened already has been frightening. The town is in fear and people are very anxious about what might happen next. The Gardaí say that they're doing all that they can to get on top of this and are confident that they will get on top of it. As we've been hearing from Chief Superintendent Christy Mangan, all leave has been suspended for members of the force locally. There's assistance from national units and to the town is to uh, enjoy an additional 18 Gardaí to police Drogheda over the Christmas period. But whatever they do, uh, it may be a battle that can't win given some of the problems in the legal and judicial system. This is according uh, to John Wilson, who's a former member of Angarda Siakana and came to public attention at the time. He highlighted uh, an issue with penalty points along with Sergeant Boris McCabe and he's on the line. This morning to you, John, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, just outline for us, if you will, some of the problems that the guards have in stamping out this type of activity uh, because whilst they may arrest people and those people may end up in prison, I I take it uh, that that's not always the solution. Good morning, Michael. And just apropos of your earlier conversation with Minister McEntee uh, in relation to Brexit, if EU member states had the power to control their own borders, Brexit would never have happened. Um, and it actually is connected with, with, with the subject we're going to talk about. Now, mm. um, the, rea- the reality is, Michael, that Angarda Shirkana are operating as a fire brigade service. Um, that's what they're operating on, uh, uh, operating as, um, you know, of, of over the last 20 years or so. Putting out fires um, rather than stopping them from happening. Yeah, of, mm. of course, Michael. Mm. And I tell you, you know, um, community policing, people underestimate the value of good of, of community policing. And good community police officers are worth their weight in gold. Um, but unfortunately, Michael, um, the obsession with the Mangardi Shirkana with statistics um, has destroyed community policing in this country because prevention of crime cannot be measured on a spreadsheet. Uh, and you have good guards out there, in, in, you know, over years were in communities. They knew everybody. They knew the young, the young criminals coming up. Um, they did their best to prevent those young fellas from progressing on to real criminality. Uh, they had great success in certain cases, and in, in a lot of cases, actually. Um, but unfortunately, the obsession with statistics, which directly led to the falsified crime figures and the falsified breath tests, um, you know, I, I would, I would, I would place a lot of the blame, you know, a lot of the responsibility for where we are today on on, on the downgrading of community policing. But 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 overall, Michael, the rule of law in this country has broken down. You you are specifically concentrating on the problems. 
um, that have that have come to a head in in Drogheda. But uh, the reality is, Michael, that throughout this country there are communities living in fear and that are being terrorised by gangs of criminal thugs. And when these difficulties are highlighted, politicians all we get are, all we get is the usual generic political waffle about more guards, while ignoring the fact that our entire justice system is a dysfunctional mess. Right. Uh, and instead of putting out fires, you believe that the community police officers could prevent uh, young fellas in particular from getting uh, into this type of activity uh, and preventing the fires. But uh, after the fire has happened, uh, one of the problems is a revolving door, is it? Michael, and I mean, our bail laws are a joke. I mean, they were meant to have been tightened up a couple of years ago, but whenever the law says a judge may refuse bail as opposed to a judge must refuse bail, it's a waste of paper. Um, bail, I mean, a simple solution would be that any individual that is released on bail under no circumstances should get bail a second time until all original matters have been dealt with and any sentence imposed by your court has been served. You will more than have crime in a very, very short space of time mm. um, if that law was changed. How, how, I mean, do you, how do you mean a second time? Just explain that to us, if you would. But for God's sake, Michael, you, you can be on bail numerous times at the one time. Before at the you're one finally, time? Of course you can be. There's no restriction. I mean, I mean, mm. it, it, uh, the, the reality is, Michael, that um, our district courts deal with over 70% of all crimes and offences in this country. But... Our district court system is seen upon... Our district courts um, are, are at the very bottom of the food chain, and that's the way they're seen mm. uh, by government and by, the, and, and, and by the higher courts. The reality is that, if, you know, your, your, your listeners will hear of a district court judge will maybe give a guy three months or six months imprisonment. In effect, you're talking weeks, if even weeks, mm. days and weeks before they're back out again. And what's happened is the revolving door system that over, over a quarter of a million crimes have been committed over the last 10 years or so by people on bail, right? There's no, listen, no government in this country is willing to implement the measures necessary to effectively deal with criminality. And, uh, and, and, and you might have noticed also, Michael, that um, we're going to have a general election again shortly, and crime features nowhere, nowhere uh, in the... Uh, manifestos of either Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael, and the reason being that they have they have been so incompetent and negligent over many decades that they have aired, that this subject is airbrushed out of every election campaign, and it should be it should be to the fore uh, in, in 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 the next election campaign. Uh, and when somebody is out on bail, in your experience, is it commonplace for them to reoffend? Um, listen, uh, I think something in the region, I think it's, it's like one in five or one in six uh, offenders re-offend or, com- or commit crime while on bail. Uh, the bail system is an absolute farce in this country. It's an absolute, our, our, our justice system is a dysfunctional mess. I mean, you had pensioners given an extra five euro in the last budget. I mean, what, what the hell good is an extra five euro a week if you're living in fear in rural Ireland or in urban Ireland for that matter? Uh, the reality is that um, we need to totally reform a justice system. Uh, if, somebody is, if somebody is on bail um, and they, and they re-offend, they should be locked up, uh, put into custody. And I'll tell you this, mm. uh, St. Patrick's Institution was closed down a number of years ago, okay? It used to cater for between 16 and 16 and 21-year-old um, male offenders. Some of the most evil people, evil criminals, and I, I suppose some of your listeners will think I'm, I'm bananas when I say this, but some of the most evil criminals I ever met 
uh, we're 13, 14, 15 and 16 year olds but when you get a mixture of youthful, youthful exuberance, bravado and evil together that's a, tox- a toxic cocktail the reality is that an awful lot of these young offenders that we're talking about now they're all they're, they're young teenagers uh, or, or, or young lads in their early 20s um, they have never heard the word no they have never been disciplined in their lives uh, and they are and they are basically out of control. I mean, the drug, you know, you know they they seem they see the Angarish uh, Shikana, they see our justice system as being impotent, and they can do what they like. And unfortunately, Michael, um, in my experience, um, the victims in Ireland always lose. Now, the reality is, Michael, we could make this the safest country, the safest Western democracy to live in, but the willingness is not there. But what does prison achieve? Uh, uh hear of people who go into prison and come out worse. People who go into prison weren't taking drugs, come out drug addicts. Michael, I'm not denying, I'm not, I'm not playing down the difficulties uh, that we have in our prison service, but my priority is to the, to, to the law-abiding citizens of Ireland. End of story. I really don't care if these people are locked up. Mm. If they should be locked up, they should be locked up. Rehabilitation in this country. I have no problem with rehabilitation. I have no, no problem with it. But unfortunately... Um, it should be rehabilitation with a small R and punishment with a capital P. Unfortunately, and I'll tell you, Michael, mm. I, was nev- I was never a member of the Hangham and Flogham Brigade when I was a guard. I defended people as well as prosecuting them, okay? But the pendulum, Michael, has swung too far the other way. We have gangs of criminals terrorising communities around the country. Uh, and Gardaí Síochána are operating with one hand behind their back. And in relation to foreign criminals, right, that's before we even we, we even talk about the influx of foreign criminals into this country. Um, you're fully aware of the fact that Shane O'Farrell was killed by a man who should not have been allowed into the bloody country. He was a criminal before he even came into Ireland. Mm. Criminals, criminals, convicted criminals should not be allowed free access or, um, across Europe, right? Uh, I have no problem with the free movement of decent people, but the free movement of criminals and social welfare exploiters should be stopped. But getting back to your substantive point, our justice system is creaking, um, we need we need to put in we need to put a system in place. First of all, we need we need a proper juvenile prison, okay? A, a proper juvenile prison, okay, mm. to detain young offenders, keep them locked up, um, and um, when they're fit to be let back into society, then so be it. Let them back into society. I have no problem. Again, to reiterate, I have no no problem with with, with rehabilitation. Crime against the elderly should be classified as a special category of crime. Okay, but again, our district courts, Michael, our district courts are at the very bottom of the food chain when it comes to dealing with criminals. Um, You have guys appearing in district courts all over this country. Um, They're they're appearing on multiple charges. They'll have all their charges dealt with the same day. They'll get a second, they'll get a pittance of a sentence, six Mm -hmm. or eight months in prison. Out they go. They're in in prison for a couple of months uh, and they get out of prison and they start back uh, onto the career of career of, careers of crime again. Mm. And is that what you were talking about when you were uh, talking about Brexit at uh, uh, the beginning of uh, the yes. conversation uh, yes. about uh, the likes of uh, the man who knocked Shane Farrell down, Carrick McCross? Yeah, the reality, the reality is, I mean, I had to laugh. There was a, big, there was a high-level meeting between the PSNI and Agarish Shikana recently to, to discuss Brexit and the implications of Brexit. The reality is that criminals are coming and going across the border with impunity for many, many years. Um, but particularly for the last four, for the last fourteen years since the accession states joined, and I'm not I'm not I'm not singling out any people. There are thousands of great people from Poland, Lithuania, have committed this have committed this country over the last fourteen years. But the reality is 
that in, in 2004, Ireland became a dumping ground for Eastern European criminals. And many of these people are operating with impunity in Ireland. Occasionally, Angarda Shirkana will have a success against them, but they are by and large operating with impunity. Uh, there was an individual stabbed, uh, I think a couple of months ago, uh, in the early in the morning, in the early morning, rush hour traffic was stabbed uh, along the quays in Dublin. Um, and it's connected with the Romanian gang. They're fighting over it. It's a turf war over, over the sex industry, over prostitution in this country. Mm. Horrific, horrendous. Irish people should be jumping up and down and screaming and roaring about, about the state, the dysfunctional state of our, of our justice system, uh, Michael. But unfortunately, no. Unfortunately, no. We get the same old generic waffle about more guards than the bees. That's only one aspect of it, Michael. I know in, in, in relation to what's going on in Drogheda, and of course we can't be specific because there are legal, there are legal charges pending, mm. Um, these young groups of thugs um, believe they can act with impunity because they have seen no evidence to the contrary. Right, and when you talk about people coming here from other countries and uh, operating with impunity, uh, would, yes, they, would they not be doing the same thing in their home country had they not come here? Well, the reality is, Michael, let each country worry about themselves. Um, our, the government, our, the Irish government's responsibility should be solely to take care of, of the people living here, of the Irish citizens living here. I have no problem with decent people coming in here. No problem whatsoever. And unfortunately, uh, anybody who raises issues in the way that I am raising them will, will be labelled as a xenophobe and a racist, which is absolutely unacceptable and horrific. Okay, it's totally unacceptable to me. But the reality is, Michael, that we became a dumping ground for Eastern European criminals in 2004. That's still the case today. You go into any court and draw it, Dundalk, Cavan, Monaghan, mm. uh, Athlone, Right, all around the Midlands, right, um, a, a good number, a large number on the court list are made up of Eastern European criminals, and many of them are, are, are repeat offenders in this country. It's not a case of committing one, one crime or one offence and then learning a lesson. They are, some of these individuals appearing in our courts, in our courts uh, are repeat offenders. They have no respect for the law in this country, no respect whatsoever. Uh, and we have a weak government who are not capable of effectively tackling these problems. Uh, and talk to me a, a little bit more about uh, this feud in Drogheda because uh, we're hearing uh, that people are coming from overseas in support of uh, the different gangs uh, involved. How concerning is that? Or does it mean that there's no possible end to the amount of participants in this feud? Michael, uh, the reality is, uh, just as I alluded to earlier on, these people believe they're untouchable, right? They believe they're untouchable. Uh, and if we had a proper, robust judicial system, a robust justice system put in place, these people would not be coming to Ireland because if, if they came to Ireland and got involved uh, and get involved in criminal activity, they should be absolutely, they should be locked away for, mm. they should be locked away for many, many years and not let out, okay? And another area we have to look at is remission in this country, okay? Um, we, should put in, we should put in place a system, Michael, that if somebody gets six months imprisonment, they should have to serve three months imprisonment. Their omission should be based on the, on, on the latter half of every sentence in this country. At the moment, it's a sick joke. You know yourself, you talk to people. Um, the, the revolving door system, I mean, it is just that. Mm. Um, people are coming in and out of prison. They're not learning their lessons. Um, they, they, they go into prison, they come out of prison. They, they re-engage in criminality. Unfortunately, and unfortunately, rehabilitation does not work. It does work in a very, very limited number of cases, Michael. But in relation to drugs, and um, the, the money to be made by young lads, uh, and it, it, it's so great um, that all, all efforts to divert them um, from this path, um, unfortunately, uh, many of the efforts put in mm. place are futile because the consequences, you know, they, they, uh, you know when we have this, 
this phrase zero tolerance that was bandied around here a number of years ago, okay? Mm. Unfortunately, unfortunately, when anyone, when anyone uses the phrase zero tolerance now, people shrug their shoulders and roll their eyes because it means, it, it, in an Irish context, it means nothing. Zero tolerance means that you go in there and somebody who breaches the public order is, um, it should be arrested. Somebody um, who gets involved, who's even caught with a small amount of drugs, um, should not be just have to pay €400 Euro to the poor box in the local district court. Mm. They should have to go through an intense programme. And then in a year's time, if the judge wants to, um, well, wants okay. to kind of release them without imposing a conviction, then fine. Listen, uh, as, a, as a former member of Ungarda Shia Khan and John Wilson, <laughs> can you explain to me, because a lot of people are asking this very simple question or a question that seems very simple to them. How is it that in a, a town that has a population of around 40,000 people can find itself in a situation where drugs are being sold relatively openly from locations that everybody in the neighbourhood knows about and everybody says they're selling drugs out of that house and nothing seems to happen. That fellas can walk up to other fellas' houses and start firing shots at that house. Or that people are knocking on doors and making phone calls and saying, your son owes me €60,000. If you don't give it to me, I'll burn your house down. Uh, Or that someone is abducted and put in a bath with a a gun in their mouth. It, it, It seems as though there's something that just isn't adding up. Can, can, can you make sense of it? Getting back to what I said earlier on, the rule of law is broken down in this country. But what um, about the, policing policy? Uh, policing, the policing, as I said, policing policy um, uh, on Garda Shirkana, Garda management, and it's not, just, it's not just connected with Garda management, but Garda management um, have been bluffing people in this country for, for, for decades now at this stage, saying, oh, yes, well, yes, well, yes we're doing this, we're doing that. Um, we have the resources when in fact they did, they, they did not have the resources right if if members of Angarda Shirkana are embedded in every community getting back to my comments about community policing if Angarda Shirkana are embedded in every community these problems these problems um, will not be as great uh, many of these problems will not even arise because they, the community guards will be on top of them um, before they have a chance to, before they have a chance to blossom okay unfortunately Angarda Shirkana has become totally detached from the general population over the last two or two, over the last two decades or so, okay, because their obsession with statistics, you cannot record again to repeat what I said earlier on, you cannot record crime prevention, crime prevention on a spreadsheet, okay. It was all about statistics and numbers and statistics and the numbers of detections, right. The reality is that um, you know to use that old hoary old expression, you know, we are where we are. Um, I think on Garda Shirkana, um, we'll, first of all, we have to change the bailouts, okay? Because you'll find mm-hmm. a lot of these guys are on bail or have been on bail, all right? Mm-hmm. Um, we have to change the bailouts. We have to impose, um, start imposing heavy mandatory sentences, sentences, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, for anybody who's caught in possession of a firearm or anybody who's caught, in, who's caught dealing drugs or anybody who's caught uh, in possession of drugs, even for their own use for a second or subsequent time, okay? And there is no, Michael, at the moment there is no fear, and you have a lot of young lads who have no fear, uh, they have youthful exuberance, a mixture of youthful exuberance provided by evil, and they have no fear. They don't, they're not, they're not afraid of the guards, they're not afraid of the justice system. If we put in place a robust justice system uh, where individuals uh, know that if they're caught and convicted in a court, they will go to prison for a long time. And if they don't, if, and we should also we should also introduce um, public safety orders. And any individual, okay, any individual uh, who poses a threat. 
to the lives of our men and our women and to society in general should be detained until they no longer pose that threat. And if that's five years, 10 years, 20 years or for the rest of their natural lives, then so be it. Okay, now I have to leave it there, John. I've run over time, but thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. John Wilson, uh, whistleblower and former member of Ungarda Siakana. Michael Reed on LMFM. Most patients have had a good or very good experience in hospital. This is according to the National Patient Experience Survey, which is being published today. Rachel Flynn, director of uh, the survey, is on the line. Good morning to you, Rachel, and thanks uh, for joining us. It's the second such survey, and nationally, I think 84% of the people who responded to you said that their experience was positive. Uh, That compared to 86% in County Meath and 81% in County Louth, uh, but all very, very positive. I I think quite often hospitals get bad press, so I'm sure they'll be delighted at this. Yeah, so thank you, Michael, um, for that introduction. Yes, so um, you're correct in saying that a high percentage, 84% of patients um, said that they had a good experience or very good experience, and a high percentage of patients also said that they were treated with respect and dignity and that they had confidence and trust in the hospital system. So that's all really, really positive. And even since last year, this is the second year of the survey, we can see improvements around the two stages of care, particularly around um, the care patients receive when they're on the ward. And this relates to, you know, pain management, were they given assistance during mealtime, was there somebody to talk to about their worries and fears. And we also see an improvement around discharge. And we know from the survey from last year that patients, They want to be more involved in the discharge process. They want more information going home so that they can manage their condition. So we've seen improvements in two stages of care, but I suppose the whole reason of doing such a survey is to identify areas for improvement, and, and certainly the areas for improvement mostly relate to getting into the hospital, which is access to the hospital, and getting out of the hospital, which is discharge from the hospital. So getting into the hospital, we saw that the 27 hospitals in the country that have an emergency department. Unfortunately, none of them met their target of being admitted within a six-hour waiting time frame. Mm. Um, And we know that the longer you wait in the emergency department, it has implications on your outcome. And we also saw that patients, um, while there has been improvements since last year on discharge, they still want more information going home. They want it better planned, and they want to um, have better information about the side effects of medications and also the danger signals to look out for when, when they're at home. Uh, and politicians and indeed healthcare professionals will tell you that once you're in the system, you'll find that the service is of very high quality. This uh, survey seems uh, to endorse that view. Uh, and I suppose across the country, the experiences are different. Nobody wants to end up in hospital. But if you uh, end up in a hospital in Louth, you'll go to Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital or the Louth County Hospital, which provide different services. Services and different services again in Navin in Our Lady's hospitals. So, uh, because they're providing different services, people have different experiences. Yeah. So, like I suppose it, this is all about being more patient-centered. So, um, involving patients in their decision and involving patients in the design of the system. So, so it's all about I suppose um, providing services that includes them. And we know from the survey results nationally, they want to be more involved and they also want. To, spe- to have more time spent with doctors um, to talk about their conditions. So, and we know from research that if a patient is more engaged, they have better outcomes. 
So in terms of um, overall experience, you're correct in saying that Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital, they would have had um, eight, 8 out of 10 for overall experience. And Our Lady of Hospital Navin would have 8.4 out of 10. And of course, there are different types of hospitals. But again, it, it's all about engaging with patients, whether it's a big, busy hospital or whether it isn't a big, busy hospital that doesn't have an emergency department. It's all about involving patients more, um, informing them, informing their family if they wish for their family to be involved in it, um, preparing them from when they're going home, giving them the right information that's understood. So you could get information, but you mightn't be able to understand it. So it's all about getting the right type of information so that you can manage your own condition and that you know what types of medications you're, you're on and what side effects those medications have. And do you believe that the survey accurately reflects uh, the experience that all people have? Uh, because I, I gathered that uh, people have chosen to participate in, in the survey and so there's possibly a question over uh, how people come to the decision to do that. Maybe those who have had a, a positive experience are more inclined to participate. Well, the, the response rate is, we got an overwhelming response rate. Um, 13,000 patients responded to the survey nationally. So that is really good. And compared to our international colleagues in New Zealand, Scotland and England, that's much higher. So it's a 50% response rate. In terms of, we looked at um, the, the makeup of the people, you know, the non-responders versus the responders. And there isn't a difference in terms of age breakdown, gender breakdown, etc., one of the things that I found from the survey that um, patients had the opportunity to give um, written responses back. So we got about 20,000 um, responses back from patients um, what, on what was good, what could be improved, and any other comments. And patients, I suppose, wrote very frankly on those in terms of what could be improved. And in general, they were very complimentary of the staff in these hospitals. So everything from the portering staff to the catering staff to the administrative staff to the nurses to the doctors, they were very supportive of that. And they could see things like emergency department waiting times wasn't really at the, the fault of those people providing frontline service, mm. but it was a more of a system-wide issue. So I, I do think, uh, given the fact that we've had such a high response rate, it accurately reflects sure. what... Uh, and the verdict of uh, the people who've been in our local hospitals, slightly... Lower, I think, in Navin and slightly higher in Louth, but uh, generally speaking, uh, in line with uh, the results from last year, is it? Yeah. So, mm. again, like each we, what we did is that um, one of the, the whole objectives of the survey was to give the information back to the service providers as quickly as possible. So what we did was we identified and we, we identified what was good about the hospital. And I think that's really important that you just don't go to, you know, what needs to be improved. Mm. But it, it, and it gives confidence to the staff it improves morale so for example Navin um, they did really well on opportunities for family members to talk to a doctor they um, showed that they provide privacy when discussing conditions and treatment and they had um, patients that attended Navin during the month of May um, felt that they were treated with respect and dignity and then on the other hand then we identified three areas from improvement based on, on, on the questionnaire and what what the patients of the Navin who were discharging in the month of May, they want clearer answers from doctors, they want more time to discuss care and treatment with a doctor, and they want to be more involved in decision making. And that kind of goes back to my point that the patients now want to be more involved. And if they are more involved, it's better for the patient as well because they have better outcomes as a result. Okay, well, I suppose that's what everybody wants. Uh, but we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed, uh, Rachel, for your time. Rachel Flynn, Director of uh, the National Patient Experience Survey 2018. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
It is day two of 16 days of action opposing violence against women. We'll hear more about uh, this campaign now because Margaret Martin, the director of Women's Aid, is on the telephone. Good morning, Margaret, and Good morning, uh, thanks Michael. for joining us. Thank it's, you uh, again for uh, your support. Oh, you're always welcome. It's a very uh, important campaign, in actual fact, an annual campaign, but a, a very important campaign, as I think we probably discovered on Friday or learned more about it on Friday yeah. when you released the results of your femicide watch. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think what's very worrying is the the persistence of those statistics. Really, they don't seem to have changed over the 22 years that we've been gathering that data. So we know very clearly now that women are at highest risk in their own home from somebody that they know. Eight out of 87% of women have been uh, murdered by somebody that they know. And of those, 56% have been killed by an intimate partner. That's a current partner, an ex-partner. So the whole myth of stranger danger really is challenged by that. 13% of women were killed by strangers. And a number of those would have been part of another crime, very often a sexual crime. So it's it's really about trying to get the police and um, all of the other services that support and protect women to focus on where the danger is, which is is why we highlight this. Mm. And so the people, I suppose one of the things that's really important about the 16 days is that, I mean, this is over two decades that this global campaign has been running. There's a about 120 organizations and individuals involved in actions all around the country and it's as it's as relevant now as it was at the time we know you know there's an awful lot of stuff in the media very recently about rape trials our femicide research has shown the danger in terms of women because really the femicides are the tip of the iceberg for all of the women who are killed and thankfully it's not a huge amount each year each year, but for example, this year, seven women have been killed. I think it is a huge amount. I, yeah, yeah, well, I suppose... You know, I remember when there was one person yeah. a year murdered, yeah. if that, in this yeah. country, uh, yeah. male and female yeah. combined. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, But uh, every one of the seven women, obviously, very oh, important, all loved in their own way absolutely. by people who are mourning absolutely. their loss. Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I, I think the other thing is that underneath that are the women who are contacting, you know, we're getting about 50 calls a day, and, you know, women who are talking about the death threats that they get. And we now know from other jurisdictions that, you know, they have identified some of the risk factors and we hear about those things, you know, being stalked, uh, being abused in pregnancy, sexual violence. So we really want the government to take an initiative and start to, to get much better evidence. Mm. And um, I think it's a particularly opportune at the time. We have a new Garda Commissioner. We have a new initiative, a relatively new initiative within the Guards. We have local protective services units. You have one up in Loud. And they need to be properly resourced. To, they become very effective. And by resources, I mean you know the, the, the funding to give them body-mounted camera and all of those other things, but also the, the, the research that will provide the intelligence so that their risk assessment practices and the, what they do to mitigate against that risk are really, really well informed. And what did you think of the new Garda Commissioner? He was there on Friday, I understand. Uh, yeah. Do you think uh, Drew Harris uh, will bring a, 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 a new uh, way of dealing with complaints? Well, I, I must say there's two things. One, I think he hasn't attended a lot of events as yet, so we were very heartened at you know the speediness with which he accepted our invitation. He was there from, you know, I mean, we know he's a very busy man, so he was there for, he wasn't able to be there for the full conference, but he was there for the panel section. Mm. And um, in his own speech, he said that he is very committed to victims. He's very committed to protecting women and children. And I think, you know, that, that he's very 
his reputation is that he's very interested in data. We know that the guard the data needs to be more robust. We know that from the CSO office. So I'm optimistic that there's a number of the pieces that need to be in place are in place, like having that leadership, having him you know, come to an event like that, speak to, speak at an event like that. There's a high level of attendance on Gardaí from all around the country who are dealing with this issue and who are looking for a better better practices support their, to support their work. Mm. There was a very good example that one survivor who has had a horrific experience and um, her experience was shown on primetime Jessica Bowes where mm. she was assaulted. It was seen on TV um, uh, on CCTV. It was captured on CCTV uh, and you know, so, so that they, they, they really know much more. But she also spoke about, she was very, she had talked to the Gardaí in Ballymun and they have a uh, a zero tolerance of breaches of barring orders. And right. she was she went out and she talked to them and she was saying, This is you know, these are the kind of things that make a very significant difference because she had a barring order. It was breached multiple times. Mm. If her abuser had got the message that this is something the Gardaí are taking seriously, um, you know, it's very possible that that she would not have had to suffer the injuries. She has prime permanent facial damage as a result of that assault and almost lost her life. Mm. So it, 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 you say it's very serious um, and there's an uh, awful lot of women who are, are living with it. And that's it. He, he may not kill you but he, he may hurt you and yeah. hurt you very badly very uh, as uh, the case may be. Your point is is that sometimes or quite often there's warning signs if they were acted on uh, by yeah. the authorities but I, I gather that women should think that way themselves. If they are being assaulted or abused or stalked or whatever the case may be yeah. uh, that there is something that they can do themselves and uh, you're there to talk to them as well. Absolutely mm-hmm. and our free phone number is 24-7 now and as I've said to you before, it's also available to women in multiple languages, up to 170 languages. We're here if uh, friends, if family are worried about somebody as well, they're more than welcome to contact us. Okay. It's one 800 341 and it's a free phone number and it's absolutely confidential. If somebody rings, their number does not show up in our system. We have a very serious uh, respect for confidentiality and for protecting anonymity so that people can talk about what they really need to talk about and maybe they have never told somebody about what's ha- really happened to them before. That's the Women's Aid National Free Phone Helpline 1-800-341-900. Margaret, thank you indeed for joining us. So this morning, Margaret Martin, Director of Women's Aid, brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia 
gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.